0: Right, let's pray again. God, I pray that your spirit will be on this and that what I say that is right will be blown on by your spirit into fire and set our hearts aflame and anything that isn't of you just blown away by the same wind, like leaves in the autumn just disappearing. That your will be done, Lord, on all of this. Let us understand you more. Amen. Amen. Right. Um, all spread out. One thing I've had to do a lot of over the years is exams. I'm sure you all remember the days when you had exams and the kind of the nerves of getting ready and, and wondering what questions and and you know last second revision all this sort of thing. I got. I had to do lots of exams throughout my life, partly because I bailed on my first attempt at a degree and then did a separate one and, then, and so on. Um, and so I've had to take lots of exams over my life and I've got quite good at them. Not because I'm good at learning a lot. I'm good at focusing on the few things that I do need to learn with what limited capacity I have for knowledge. It's all about efficient marks rather than good marks. The last batch of exams I had was on industrial acoustics. And I knew that I had about a one in ten chance of my worst subject coming up. And so I didn't bother with it. I just thought, the chances are I should be able to get through on the other stuff I know. Um, so acoustic waveforms, forget it. Every now and then, Ewan tries to talk to me about you know waveforms and stuff, and I'm like, no, sorry, mate. You know, just, just yeah, ditch that idea. Um, the second worst subject, one in eight chance... So vibration dose values, forget it, not interested. Anything that wasn't utterly critical was a waste of what limited brain space I've got. And as I've got older, the capacity for me to hold information has gone down. So whenever I learn something new, I probably forget two things old. Um, it seems to be worse and worse. as The older I get, my memory just seems to disappear. So I'm very glad that there's no exam to get into heaven. There is... There is no theology exam, which I'm relieved at. We will not get marked on our understanding of the Old Testament. We will not be tested on whether we know the difference between sanctification and propitiation. There is only one question, do you know Jesus? And the simple answer is yes or no. No long exams, no, you know, nothing complicated, just do you know Jesus? And to make it even easier... Jesus stands with us, the examiner, answering the question with us. It's that easy. So despite my scant grasp of theology, so even if I'm wrong today, I have confidence that if I have got it wrong, for whatever reason, I will still be able to stand next to everybody else. I'll be able to stand next to people from Mother Teresa all the way up to Steve Chalk and Wayne Grudem. You know, it makes no difference how well we understand Our knowledge of of salvation and God and and all that sort of thing, there's only one question, and you're in or you're out. In fact, my favourite character in the Bible isn't, well, Elijah probably comes a close second, and Jesus, well, you know, he's probably kind of shouldn't really be on the same list, but anyway, my favourite kind of normal character in the Bible is the thief on the cross. And I think we can learn so much from the thief on the cross, and yet we don't even know his name. He was never baptized. He never went to church. He didn't lead a holy life. He hadn't followed Jesus. He had very little, if any, understanding of Scripture. And even if he had, he obviously didn't put any of it into effect. And yet, on the strength of past 11th hour confession, Jesus turns to this meritless thief and tells him that he's going to paradise. And the word paradise they use here, paradiso, literally means like a walled in oasis where you're not meant to get in. It's kept for like the, the kings and the rulers would like wall away the oasis that, you know, normal peasants wouldn't be allowed in there. And yet this guy says, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. The first person to die purely th- and go to heaven, purely by the merit of grace rather than knowing the law or anything like that. Yes, I guess they were. Saved by Jesus as well, but you know, the first person who had nothing of value in his life, justified solely by grace, and we don't even know his name. And yet we can learn so much from this guy, it's amazing. So, as I said, there is one test that gets you into heaven simply, do you know Jesus? Today I'm going to be talking about grace and that reading, where have you gone? You read it so well, I have to say, that was very. I'm not going to read it all out again because I couldn't do anywhere near as good a job. There's a whole load of information in there about grace. And to try and break it into manageable lumps, I'm going to break it into three sections: the grace in the past, grace in the present, and grace in the future. So that should be relatively easy to get your heads around. So, let's see if the magic works. Hey, grace in the past. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In, and will. This is one of those verses in the Bible that just blow our minds. We were chosen to be homeless, home, holy and blameless before the world was created. That's just incredible. Before I chose God, God had decided and chosen me. Now, I don't really want to dig too far into the whole predestination thing, because that surely would be an exam I I would completely fail on. But I think the reason why we struggle with the whole idea of predestination is because we look at it through human eyes. God looks at it completely differently. Because he is the author of creation... As any other author, he knows how the story is going to end before it even begins. Before he starts writing it, he knows the full story. He knows how the book's going to finish. Maybe he did give us free will to choose him, but because he's all-knowing, he knew that we would choose us in advance. From his point of view, he always knew it was going to happen. But this verse seems relatively clear. We were chosen, and we were predestined to be saved. So what can we take away from that? You know, what, what do we learn? Well, does that make us unique? Well, no, because lots of people are saved by the same grace. Does that make us any, any way better than anyone else? No, because my, our own merits are completely worthless. You know, We have the quality of Christ given to us. So whatever we have in ourselves it is, it is of nothing. Does it mean that we don't need to evangelise? Again, no. We're commanded to spread the gospel regardless of whether they're predestined to know, which is a complete mystery, what is certain is we're commanded to go and go into all the world. Does it make us special? Yes. Because for some unknown reason, God chose us. I, I don't know why. I, it's nothing that I, I feel kind of, hey, about. I feel humbled by it. Why? Why me? I am... I am meritless. There could be a million more people, more worthy in whatever scale you could imagine, that are more worthy of being saved than me. I am, you know, nothing. There must be a million people better than me, but God chose me, and God chose you. When I was a child, I was forced to play rugby. It was one of those things everyone had to do. You must play rugby, and I was useless at it. I hated the mud. I hated the the physicality of it. I hated the running around. I hated how, you know, if you weren't in the right friendship group, they never passed the ball to you and all this sort of thing. I I didn't like anything about it. And yet there were these kind of ten-year-olds who were big, much bigger and more capable and more sporty and more able than me. And they were there, you know, with these cauliflower ears and squashed-up noses and, you know... They're just a different breed from scrawny people like myself. So these chosen few who are actually good at them. And every so often, they would mix the teams up. You know, the A team, the B team, and the, you know, people with me in it. And every so often, they mix up the teams. And on, in my team, there was one of these rugby superstars. It's hulking great, that. And he set me up to score a try. The offside rule meant that people couldn't get to, you know, he was holding the ball like this, and people couldn't get past him because of the offside rule. And he was big enough that he could hold back the entire other team, and he's going, John, take the ball and run, score, score! And he passed me the ball, and I scored the only try in my entire life. (laughs) He could have easily scored without me, easily. He'd have done it a hundred times before. And yet, he wanted to share that victory. He wanted to see somebody else win with him. He passed me the ball and I scored a try. Predestined grace feels like that to me. A gift that we don't deserve, that has been set up so that the team captain can pass you the ball and share in the victory. That's how it feels to me. Other than being humbled, which I I feel is the biggest thing we can take out of this, I don't know what else I can say about grace in the past. And so I'm going to move on to grace in the present. As I said earlier, there isn't a test to get into heaven, but what I didn't say is there's actually a test in this talk. I want you to imagine that you've decided to take up a new hobby, you've decided to learn how to juggle, and you've committed yourself to your new hobby, and you progress from juggling juggling bolts to juggling knives. And from juggling knives to juggling fire. From juggling fire to the pinnacle of your abilities, you learn to juggle chainsaws. On a pogo stick. Balanced on a tightrope over the Grand Canyon. So here you are. (laughs) Bouncing up and down, tightrope, Grand Canyon. And let's imagine that in the middle of this trick, you get distracted and it all goes horribly wrong. And as you are plummeting down, surrounded by these buzzing chainsaws, despite your cool and calm personality, as you plummet down, your last words on earth aren't your best. And you die with half a curse on your lips. Question, hands up, would you still go to heaven? Yes, right, we all agree we would still go to heaven, even if we died with a curse word on our lips. What that demonstrates is that the grace that we hang on to does not depend on repenting of each and every sin in our life. Yeah? Do you see that? It depends, it does not depend on our repentance having brought some kind of fresh state of grace. Instead, we have a constant state of grace. Yeah? It is independent independent of any individual sins. It is a guaranteed state. It is a constant place, regardless of what sins might be in our lives. When I became a Christian, I kind of gave a, you know, I did repent of some specific sins, but there's no way I could go through every sin in my life and repent of every single sin. There is a state of grace that's independent of individual repentances. Verse 13 says, When you you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You see, I haven't got a timer going for this, so forgive me if I'm going off on one. We'll get out of here at some point. We often get the wrong idea of grace. Now, this is one of the things I really want you to take home. We imagine that we are tempted into sin and then our sin increases And we damage our relationship with God until the point where we get to a state of repentance. And at that point, we receive grace over our sin and then we get back into our relationship with God. And that cycle repeats itself again and again and again. So if you imagine like this triangle, you know, you get tempted into sin and the sin grows and grows and grows and grows and then I've had enough of this God, I've got to stop it. Grace comes and then back to the beginning, in a good state with God, but then temptation comes and the sin grows and the sin grows and the sin grows. And this cycle repeats itself again and again and again. It sounds plausible, but it's simply not true. If we needed to be in a fresh state of repentance to get a fresh state of grace, then when we fell off that tightrope and swore on the way down, we wouldn't go to heaven because we had unrepented sin in our lives. That clearly isn't the case. We are clearly in this constant state of grace. The practical upshot of this is as a Christian when we sin, our state of grace is undamaged. Our state of grace is completely immutable, unchangeable. But then where is repentance? Does repentance have no part in this anymore? Should we just, you know, do whatever we feel like? Clearly, repentance has some effect. Well, sin and repentance have effects on our relationship with God. So what What is it? What does it do? What do we need to do? Simply put, sin damages our emotional relationship with God. But that emotional relationship is independent of our state of grace. It's like a married couple. You could have a bad relationship, but still be married. Or you could look at the best example is the prodigal son in, in Luke 15. He never stopped being the father's son no matter how far away he was, no matter how many years he was distant from them, no matter how much of his inheritance he had tried to spend in advance, he came back to the father saying, make me like a servant. And he said, no, you're my son. He never stopped being his son at any point. Sin breaks the emotional relationship, but it doesn't change fundamentally who we are. We are that son. We are that husband or wife. It doesn't change that state. Now, as a motivator against sin, I find this very compelling, because instead of sin distancing us from God, which is kind of, you know, it it makes us feel like, you know, that mistake with, if sin distances us from God, then we feel like we're over here with our sin, and God is over there with his holiness, and there's this kind of insulating gap between us, that, you know, God's distant, and I'm over here, and, you know, never mind God, you know, it's that's not true. Instead, God is with us all of the time. When we swear, when we covet, when we steal, when we lie, or whatever it might be, God is right next to us. Because it is not grace or God that is broken, it is sin that is broken. Our state of sin has been transformed into a state of grace, and God now lives with us. We can't hide from God. Our sin doesn't hide us from God anymore. We're like chained slaves. We are now owned by God. Just as previously we were owned by sin, we are now owned by God. It is an adopted sonship. When we're adopted by sons, that becomes an unbreakable contract. No matter how much we wallow in our sin, God is still with us. So when you do sin, don't think that God is far from you, because he's as close to you now as he has been at any other time. And one of my favourite verses in a, in, a, in a song, the price is paid, come let us enter into all that Jesus died to make our own. The price has already been paid. And all you need to do is open the door and go inside. It's, it's there. It's there. Another one of the understandings I've had about grace is, is the enormity of how, how overwhelming it is. When I became a Christian... I thought that grace and sin were kind of like on these kind of joint, kind of like cosmic scales. And that there was sin on one side and grace on the other side. And as I sinned more, God would give me more grace. And I'd somehow kind of keep this balance between, you know, what the goodness, you know, the forgiveness that God gave me and the amount of sin that I had in my life. That, you know, they were kind of one grew and then the other grew. And that as I sinned more, it would be the greater cost to Jesus in terms of, like, suffering. You know, if i sinned more, then this would have cost Jesus more for my forgiveness. You know, more pain, more suffering, more separation in some way. It sounds logical, but it's wrong. I, I looked up to see if this is some particular heresy, which, you know, has got a particular interesting name, but oh, I couldn't find one. I call it the John heresy. Um, Hebrews 7.27 says, He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And Romans 6.10 said, The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus' sacrifice was this one-off event. It is finished, is what he said. It's not added to by any increase of sin. It is done. It is finished. I was trying to think of analogies that I can try and express to, to make this clear. Um... One analogy, which I think, I think is in one of the alpha courses, um, says it's a bit like going into a restaurant where you've forgotten your wallet, but you know the restaurant owner. And so he says, Well, you know, I will give you the food. Whereas other people, they just cannot pay. I'm not sure that's quite right because the owner has limited funds. You know, the sin, you know, like the food that you eat, which you can't pay for, you know, is, is, a, is a physical limited amount. And the amount that the owner then gives you in return is also a limited amount. Not quite right. I thought maybe it's like throwing a rock into the sea. Maybe this is a better analogy. Where the sea covers it, but it never gets any smaller. You know, the sea is this constant amount, and no matter how many rocks you throw into the sea, the sea will always cover it. The sea is never going to get smaller by throwing a rock into it. But that's not quite right, because the rock is still there. And you can measure the sea, and you can measure the rock. Or I could go all sci-fi, because I'm quite a sci-fi person. I think maybe it's like gas leaking out into space from from the space station. You know, this hard, endless vacuum, hard vacuum of space, and a little bit of gas going into it. But also, that's not quite right, because the gas is still there, just very, very, very thinly spread out. The analogy that the Bible uses is death. Romans 7.1 says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters... Am I right in the right section? Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Hang on. No, we are on the right one. Sorry about that. Romans 7, one. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man whilst her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore the fruit of death. But now, by dying to once bound up what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve the, in a new way of the spirit, not the old ways of the written code. What Paul is saying here is that when you die, you are no longer bound by the law. You're dead to it. And when you're dead, you cannot be sued, you cannot lie, you cannot steal, and your husband or wife is free to marry again without being an adulterer. You're dead to all of it. You're dead to sin, is what the Bible also says. It has no power, no law over us. Our sin cannot be counted against us anymore because we're dead to it, and it is dead to us. So to, to modernise the analogy, sin in the law was like a calculator, pressing plus and minus, adding up good things, taking away on the bad things. Grace is switching off the calculator. It's not adding an infinite amount of good points. It's not taking away an infinite amount of bad points. It is throwing the calculator away and saying it's finished, it's dead, it's gone. There is no adding and subtracting that can be done anymore. It is finished. It is finished. Last section. Grace in the future. Nearly there, home run now. Last thing I want to talk about is grace in the future. We've looked at grace in the past, how we were chosen. We've looked at grace in the present, how we're in this kind of constant state of grace. And lastly, I want to talk about grace in the future. And the million dollar question is, can we lose that grace? Can we lose our salvation? From what I've said so far, I think I'm probably leaning towards, no, I can't see, if we're in this constant state, how can that be changed in the future? But there are some verses that can cause a few bits of confusion. I haven't written them up there. Hebrews 10:26. I used to really panic over this verse, Hebrews 10:26: "If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God." Now that is terrifying if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin remains. Blinking flip. The word here, when I dig into it, the word deliberately is what's critical. I really should have put it up here, shouldn't I? The word deliberately, you're going to test me on this. Hacousios. I looked it up. I don't know it off the top of my head. It means voluntarily. It means willfully. And it has a sense in it that there's no holding back. There's no niggle of, you know, this might be a bit wrong, or, oh God, I am a little bit sorry that I did that, or, you know, any feeling of that this isn't the best thing. It's instead, deliberately seems to have a feeling of wholehearted abandon into it with no little nugget, no little gem, no tiny little voice saying, that's not the right thing to do. I'm not sure that Christians can really fall into this, because no matter how far I have strayed from God over the years, no matter what sin has crept into my life, there has always been that whisper somewhere saying, this isn't really right. I know it's not right. Things are going wrong. I'm sorry, God. I know I'm in sin. I just have to accept your grace. That is not deliberately sinning. That is reluctantly sinning. And the verse here is about deliberately, I'm going to continue to do it and I just don't care. I don't think Christians can really go into that. The other verse that's similar is Matthew 10, 33, which says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Again, does that mean that we can somehow lose our faith if we disown God? Again, you need to look into that word, disown. And it doesn't seem to be a particularly good translation, because most other places it uses deny instead. And disown means that you own something and then you don't want it anymore. Whereas deny means I just don't want it, I disagree with it. And I think that's probably a, a better a better understanding of this verse, rather than this ownership, I was owned by God and now I don't want to be owned by God, denying is like a, I don't want it in the first place. So personally, and I'm glad there's no exam on this, personally I believe that our state of salvation is immutable. It never changes and it can't change. And that when we get to heaven, it could be with many tears or it could be with few. It could be that distant reunion of a prodigal son or it could be a continuation of a close friendship. But at the end of the day, we're still getting there. With tears, with joy, with a reunion, with a close friendship continued, it doesn't matter. We have the same grace. So, in summary, if you are that prodigal son, if you feel that you're distant from God and that your, son, your sin has somehow separated you from God, I want you to know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Your state of sin is fundamentally broken. It does not hold anything. If you believe that your sin has separated you from God once you've received salvation, then you believe a lie. It's simply not true. And you're as close to God now as you ever have been, he's standing right next to you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your immutable grace. I thank you for your overwhelming salvation. And I thank you that it's not that you welcome us back into your arms because we've never left them. Thank you that you love us that much. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen.